Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And man, it feels good to sit in this chair. We're back together. We're back together again. You were here last week, and then the week previous to that, I was with Brian Redman here on the show. So I haven't seen you in It's been like, like three, three weeks. weeks. It feels good. This brings me so much joy and happiness to be here with you and with all everybody listening. This is such a great part of my life, and... You know, I get I got a, a birthday card from one of our listeners in the mail that it's I hadn't so checked. It's so cool, and it's so cool to get feedback from you guys, and just it's awesome. I just wanted to say, I, we, I love you guys. I love I love everybody that listens. I love everybody that comes on the rally. I love you, Jake. The, all of this is just really, really special to me, and it feels so amazing to sit down and do this again. And I know you've got a great story for us yes! today. I'm really excited. You told me to look up a few things. Can I, can I, I'm excited to talk about what I figured out. We'll get there. No. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to spin a tale that delves into the unknown history of something we take for granted today, but rather than tell you where I'm going with this. You know what this was like? What? This was just like, you know, when you, when you meet a girl and you, and you go on a few dates and you, and you throw out, Hey, I, I love you. And then they don't say, I love you back. Okay. That's what you just did to me. Oh, okay. You just we, did it. You're and right, but you late. changed the subject and kind of went into the story. It's too late. You can't say it now because I've prompted you. It's like saying, well, thanks for saying thank you. And well, you can't go, <laughs> well, thank you because then it doesn't work anymore. I love you too, Chris. <laughs> there it is on the record. I don't believe you. <laughs> All right, let's okay. do this. But rather than tell you where I'm going to go with this today, okay. I just want to have you follow along. Okay. Right? I don't know much. I no. just, you and that's fine, but I'm not going to tell anyone else. You know, sometimes. I'll say like, here's the history of X, Y, Z. Okay. No, well, the problem I'm just is, go is that we're going for a drive. You're along for the ride. I like seeming really smart. Right. And when you don't give me any chance to research ahead of time, I can't it's throw out like- It's the real you. <laughs> it's, it's always my real knowledge that I may or may not have. <laughs> we just make it up until we uh, get called out on it. Yeah, How about which that? happens, which happens. No, I, I usually do a lot of thorough research for these, you which do, is You do, but I don't. I have to sit over here like some sort of dunce that doesn't understand what's going on I just guess you know, it's great for the yeah, listeners well, this is how they get rid of nuclear waste it's, uh, it's just, uh, just no, no it's not launch it into space that sounds like <laughs> that was a bad idea turned yeah, out well I'd see that's what I'm talking about yeah. I would have known it was a bad idea had you let me know ahead of time right okay well let's get right into it I'm gonna start with the story of the great snow of 1717. Where is this great snow of 1717? Northeast United States. Okay. Well, it wasn't the United States yet. It's regarded as one of the greatest blizzards ever to hit the continent, and it was quite literally a perfect storm of factors. You see, Namely climate change. Not in 1717. Well, actually, uh -oh. yes. It was, technically, because listen to this. Must have been a lot of farting cows back then. No, just months prior in 1716, no fewer than three separate volcanic eruptions rocked Asia. Aha, uh -huh. okay. On August 16th, the tall volcano... Volcano. It's, volcano. it's a volcano. It's, it's like Val Kilmer, it's, but the it's, volcano. It's the ritzy version. It's, the, it's not a volcano. It's the five it's the star. Volcano. It's got treadmills. It's got pool. So the it's because I was trying to pronounce tall correctly, so then I went tall volcano. Yeah, well, tall is something you're very unfamiliar with, so I can understand your uh -huh. difficulty. Thank you, yes. So this volcano was in the Philippines. It erupted with a pyroclastic surge. The same happened in Japan. when A What? What? A pyroclastic surge? Yeah. Do you know what that is? Are you going to be smart and tell me what a pyroclastic... Everyone knows what that is. I don't have to describe that, Chris. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> it's basically just like that. So pyro meaning fire, clastic-ish. 
What does plastic it's, mean, It's Jake? fire-ish. <laughs> so it's like a fire-ish surge. Yeah, yeah. The pyro-ish surge. It's basically just exploded, okay, okay guys? It's an explosion. It exploded. Yes. Yeah. I'm sounding scientific because that's how they described it. It's the big explosion. Yeah, you don't know, but go ahead. Continue. It's, I described it correctly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's plastic. It's the gas and the molten lava and just- When was the last time you heard anybody describe something as plastic? My motor went plastic out in California. No, I don't, I don't think you're using that right at all. <laughs> I, now I want to, we should look up the exact okay. definition I'll of look plastic, up plastic. Go ahead. While no. I talk about the other volcanoes. Uh, yeah, so another one in Japan. You're not even close. <laughs> what is plastic? Plastic is, it, it is having separable into parts or having removable sections made up of fragments of pre-existing rocks or so, fragmental. So your engine did plastic. It did. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah it's, so fire went into a bunch of different parts. Yeah, yeah py it, pyroclastic. Yeah, I was right. Pre-existing rock turned into fragmenting rocks, pretending to may what be taken apart. Well, my engine is future plastic as well. Then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. Okay, so that one in the Philippines, another one in Japan was Mount Kirishima, which erupted shortly after, along with the Kalud volcano in Indonesia. So with these three eruptions, the sheer volume of ash spewed into the atmosphere was unprecedented. When volcanic ash and gases reach the stratosphere, it absorbs outgoing radiation from the Earth's surface while also reflecting incoming solar radi radiation. So this lowers the temperature for many parts of the world, creating what is referred to as a Val-Kilmer winter. Volcanic winter. So okay. you've heard of like nuclear winter? Yep. This was a mini nuclear winter caused by volcanoes. Sure. Volcanic winter. This winter led to erratic and extreme weather patterns, which were felt in the northern eastern part of what is now modern day United States. Remember, though, back in 1717, the eastern seaboard was basically nothing more than a smattering of colonial yeah, establishments. It was colonies at the time. Exactly. So that the winter. Shining city on the hill. That was. Was yeah. that a specific colony they referred to or just? No, that was kind of like, it was more like general, you know, philosophical. What was that from? Uh, I it wasn't the Declaration was, of Independence. No, it was, it was Jean, Jean Locke, I think, called it the, think you're right. the Shining City on that the That was good. Look yeah. at you. Um, so the winter had already been a snowy one with reports of five feet of snow already on the ground when the great snow began. Starting in mid-February, snow beat down on the area for weeks on end. Without reprieve, according to the New England you, Historical Society. Can you imagine? Just never ne lets up. Ne well, here would be great because you could look in, you could sip hot cocoa out your window with your furnace on, looking at it yeah. snow outside. But just imagine being in like one of the original colonies. I'm going to tell you how bad it was. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, I can it, tell you exactly what it was like. So according to the New England Historical Society, accumulation totaled up to 25 feet high in some places. Holy cow. Famed contemporary philosopher Henry David Thoreau had asked the local Native American tribes if they had, had any record of such a snowstorm in their oral history. Quote, the Indians near 100 years old affirm that their fathers had never told them of anything that equaled it. And indeed, it was unprecedented. Since this predates the formation of the nation, there were few official records of casualties or the actual extent of damage. What we do know, though, is that with horses unable to travel in the deep snow, transportation was impossible. Families were literally trapped in their homes. Some fortunate few who lived in concentrated towns basically dug tunnels underneath the snow so they could pass from home to home and into the town square. Me? Yeah. Think about it. It's 20 feet of snow above you. 
They said you couldn't see homes. All you could see were chimney spires. That's insane. <laughs> so you dig tunnels to get to your neighbor's house and be like, do you have any, I don't know. Sugar? <laughs> but yeah, it's just like any smoked meat or whatever you're trying to Yeah, sugar, store. probably not. Probably not sugar. That no. would have been... That would have been you. You could have you could have traded a lot of smoked meat for sugar. I bet. Yeah, back then for sure. The damage to livestock was tremendous. Many cattle, chickens, sheep, and pigs succumbed to the frigid temperatures, and many were simply buried under the snow. Barns weren't common at this time, so some farmers simply brought a few of their livestock into their home to weather the storm with them. What else do you do? Well, and as you can be imagined, also to be used as a source of food there. Yeah, I Bessie suppose. the cow is living in the living room with us, and we're kind of hungry. So and cold, so maybe there was some cow cuddling. Yeah, I bet there was cow cuddling before you <laughs> ate the cow. No, it's interesting. When they ran out of wood and coal to heat the houses, they would literally just chop up the furniture and burn it to stay alive. Yeah. When it comes to the wildlife, there are estimates that 90% of the how, deer population died. How wide was this wildlife? Three feet wide. <laughs> wild <laughs> life. I need to slow down gonna, and enunciate. I'm going to tear you apart today, apparently. That is quite all right. <laughs> Break for water. Okay. So there are several records, however, of farmers uncovering their livestock up to three weeks later and finding pigs, turkeys, and chickens just still alive. I don't know how. They were just buried under the snow, and they're like, yeah, we've just been hanging out in snow caves i i don't know that was interesting but when the snow finally stopped things didn't immediately get better with such a sheer volume of snow there was no way to get around most accounts state that people remained holed up until well into spring when the snow finally began to melt basically starving to death these people. starving and stuck what but if they, what if they canceled school Oh, was there I'm, a snow I'm, day? I'm quite sure they canceled everything <laughs> for the entire winter. Before we get too much further, though, let's break and talk about something that is actually good if you're holed up at home. Petrol Box. Petrol Box is a monthly service made specifically for the automotive enthusiast. Each month, they carefully select items, including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, publications, all the latest and greatest. And guess what? It gets delivered right to your doorstep, even in the middle of a blizzard. You don't have to go out to get it. Right. It's a curated selection of the latest and greatest in the industry. There are actually two different levels of subscription to choose from. The Petrobox Basic costs less than 20 bucks a month, while the Petrobox Premium gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. Check them out at mypetrolbox.com, and be sure to use the code OVERCREST at checkout, because that gets you $6 off your first month. So, Chris, as terrible as the great snow was, keep in mind that this was a time when the primary economy of the colonies was based on fur trading yep. and farming. When the Industrial Revolution came around, winter conditions posed a whole new set of challenges. Besides simply struggling to stay alive and tend to animals, the entire economy depended on commerce continuing So now we're talking about the early winter. 20th century, Industrial Revolution. Yes. Okay. Well, 19th century, 1800s. Okay, okay, okay. Yep. So, yeah, before you're like, okay, I just need to stay alive and maybe tend to my animals. But if the economy completely collapses, you have a whole other problem. Right. So, eventually, rather than struggling to trudge through deep snow, the European settlers looked to the Native Americans, who offered a completely foreign technology, the snowshoe. 
Yeah, I was thinking about that, right? You just have yes. like a, a snowshoe basically just keeps it distributes the weight on Correct. top of the snow. But yep. what do they make them out of? Wood, like birch wood. It's wood that you like basically bend around into a hoop shape. And then you use basically animal skin. Yep, it's leather. You, yeah. you tie leather between them to create like a. You use the sinew a lot too. Sinew was used for like cord. Yeah, well, that's what they would do is they would. Yeah, but you want wide strips. Not necessarily. No? No, not necessarily. Otherwise, you got a tennis racket. That's, Try walking on a tennis racket in the snow. It works. It would work just fine. <laughs> yeah, absolutely would I work just fine. I think wide strips would be better. Um, technically, yeah, probably. But I know that they use thinner strips as well. Maybe to tie the birch wood together. That's how they lashed it, we'll say. Okay, well, it's good compromise. Uh, agree to compromise. Okay, so we used both. Agree both to compromise. Right. Yeah, so snowshoes were basically a foreign technology to the Europeans. And they're like, oh, wait. These people that have been living here for thousands of years before us actually kind of figured it out with the snowshoe. And beyond adopting and adapting to the struggles of winter, colonists eventually learned that snow could actually help them solve an important problem. Looking at antique snowshoes here? Yeah. I'm right. Right. It's, it's, it it's looks many, like a tennis racket? It's many, many thin, thin wires, not just a bunch of thick ones. Well, if you look at a modern-day snowshoe, it's like strips. Well, we're so not talking I, about modern day. Yeah, we're talking but about I'm the industrial revolution. Than the Native Americans. Yeah. Okay. Sorry are, for everyone I've offended. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So one of the biggest challenges to colonial commerce was just transporting goods, things. How do you get it around? Wooden wagon wheels struggled to roll over rough trails and uncharted terrain. Moving heavy goods and loads of people across uneven land routes could be prohibitively expensive or simply impossible. In the winter, however, snow and ice reduced friction and covered ruts in roads. And when lakes and rivers froze, they suddenly became flat, obstacle-free highways. Often, construction of new mills and industrial sites would actually wait until the winter months when heavy materials like wood and stone could be transported over ice and snow. And in fact, frozen lakes and rivers were so efficient at transport, they offered an interesting side effect. Speed. Now, I believe in speed. Speed solves many things. It sure does. Speed speed falls everything and it's not the it's not the speed that kills it's the sudden slowing down yes so think about up until this point chris what was the fastest a human had ever traveled um so i looked into different this is what you asked me to look up as like what were some fast ways so and i want to start first of all do you have horseback on there i have horseback okay i have um let's I do go through them so first, I want to talk about why did you why did you have me look because I want to discuss this. Yeah, well, let me tell you what I thought okay. of first. Go for it before you just make my entire thinking about this a total waste of time. <laughs> um, I have falling down doesn't count. Well, you you didn't you asked me to find okay, out. Okay, think things. of locomotion. Well, I'm not thinking about that. I'm thinking about just fast humans. Okay, yes, um, fast I thought humans. About, if you jump off a cliff, you're going really fast. Yes, yes. that is uh, acceleration of 20 meters per or 20 miles per hour per second, which is 9.8 meters per second squared, Correct. which is the acceleration of gravity. I actually looked up the speed of gravity without wind resistance. Right, so a human being can travel if you are what is terminal velocity is what you're talking about being yes 200 miles per hour okay it's the fastest now are you you in like a full tuck full tuck (laughs) if if your arms are out it's around 120 miles per hour really that slows you down that much it slows you down that much still really gonna hurt still really gonna hurt 120 miles an hour right yeah you're not you're you're walking away from that um so like i was thinking of the well who's who's going but 
Mayans threw people off cliffs to sacrifice them. Okay, but so that those people goes, were going really fast. Right, so that's fast travel, right there. I don't feel like you're getting the spirit of my question, though. No, but you didn't tell me anything. This is all <laughs> I had to go. All right, we'll continue. Uh, I also thought of bobsleds. You're getting closer. Yeah, I thought of bobsleds and toboggans. Yes, is is two things that I thought of. I also was thinking of um, the speed of gravity too, which I found out is actually uh, relativistic. It's the speed of light. The speed Correct. of gravity, which led me down this rabbit hole of being really interested. And I ended up reading yeah, they, a speech they, by Stephen Hawking. Oh, yeah, they stuff. say like if if like ancient or interdimensional like beings would communicate, they'd communicate through gravity waves. As uh, shown in the movie Interstellar. What, oh, it was gravity waves. It was gravity right. is, the way that, is the way that they communicated. And then I started being like, well, how, what are some ways that we could really, and then I thought of horses, obviously. I'm like, what yep. animals are faster? I said, cheetahs. And I'm like, can't well, ride a cheetah. Uh, but I put down strapping a child to a cheetah <laughs> <laughs> would be up, what up the, to what 80 miles per hour. What if the child, does that count? <laughs> that does not count because they're dead. Okay. But that would be up to, cheetahs can run like 80, 80 70 miles. 70 something. Yeah, they, they get up there. So that's. You know, if you if you lashed a child to a cheetah, you could go pretty fast. But I don't know how fast do horses run. Thirty five. So yeah, 38? horses back in the day, keep in mind, you aren't really the same as racing horses that we have today. Quarter horses can go about fifty five miles per hour in oh short okay. sprints. Yeah, horses a few hundred years ago though weren't bred for speed; they were bred for work. So we have to imagine they would have been a bit slower. They figure maybe 45 to 50 miles an hour was like the top speed for a horse back then. Man, riding a horse. I've ridden, I've trotted around on a horse. Right, yeah. But running would be incredible. That's got to be an incredible feeling. It's scary. Like yeah. you can, re- like, you don't realize how high up you are on a horse, especially for a short guy. Yeah, no like, kidding. Like that's, that's up there. Yeah. Well, that's and you how can you... see why people would get uh, injured or killed by falling off of a running horse. Christopher Reeve, Superman. Oh, that's right. That's how we yeah. got what a, paralyzed. What a way to go for Superman. Yeah. What a bummer. It is. What a pity. All right. Did you think about ships? I did not. I did not think about vessels. I'm going to guess most right. ships. Right. So what we're talking about here is like locomotion. Like what yeah, is yeah, the yeah, fastest yeah, yeah. a person can go on a how many vehicle? Knots? How many knots are these sailors? The yeah. Big... Okay. So good question. Knots. So, well, due to meticulous records. Hey, kept... Hold on. Do you yes. know what knots is? It's how they actually measured speed back in the day. Yeah, but how so did they, they do it? So they would throw something in the water, connected to a long string of rope, and in the rope they tied knots every so often, and yep. so they count at a steady distance. Yep, and they, would and they count. count how many knots would go by in I think a minute or something. Yep, and that's the speed is because that's how far they've traveled. Right. That's like, pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember it's not how that far much different than miles per hour. Are. I think it's 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 actually quite close. Yeah, yeah. the the uh, equivalence ratio. So what's interesting with ships, though, back in the day, due to meticulous records kept by the Royal Navy, we know exactly how fast ships went. The HMS Endymion was commissioned in 1797 and served all the way up to 1888, which in itself is crazy. Can you imagine any ship today, let alone a military vehicle, being in service for the better part of 100 years? How did they keep the shipworms out of that thing? That's crazy. Isn't that nuts? Yeah. The HMS Endymion was fi- was fidelity? Fidelity? What did I try to write here? <laughs> widely. I bet that's supposed to be widely. <laughs> and then it auto-corrected to fidelity. It's the HMS what? E-N-D-Y-M-I-O-N. Endymion. Yeah. 40-gun ship. It's a big boy. Yeah, look at that thing. So it's widely known as the fastest sailing ship during its age. When sailing large... 
Listen to this part. Okay. When sailing large, she logged a fastest speed of 14.4 knots or 17 miles an hour, which isn't all that impressive. That is impressive. This thing is, okay, so this thing is 159 feet long, has a beam, which is the width of a ship, right. of 42 feet. It's big. That is 42 feet. The the beam of most boats that you see out on the water is eight, eight feet beam. Yep. The draft of this thing, which is how much of the boat is underneath the water, right. 15 feet. <laughs> okay, so think of all the water this thing is displacing. True. That's, uh, okay, that's incredible. Okay, so 17 miles an hour. But here's what's interesting. So what I Manned just said. by 300 men. Wow. In the War of 1812, they had 340 men probably to uh, uh, man the cannons. It had 26 24-pounder guns. Oh, so the pounder of a gun refers to the weight of the cannonball it launched. Yeah, that's just on the upper deck. Wow. Yeah. Wow, incredible. And they used it for And it had 80... 16 32-pounders. Wow. They In... used this thing for like 90 years. Yeah, that's incredible. I can't believe it lasted that long. So well, I, I guess if talk... you can run away from whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. So I want to talk about sailing terminology here and take kind of a tangent. So I love maritime fiction. I've read a lot of maritime fiction yeah. books. It's and uh, if you there's have you ever seen Master and Commander oh, Far yeah. Side of the World? Great movie with great sound. That's actually oh, it a does, really yeah. really good if you love good quality sound, home theater Dolby Atmos. That's a really good one to get good on Blu-ray. Score. Yeah, really, really good movie. Uh, but the book is way better. Yeah. Really, really interesting. So um, as far as the terminology goes, this is interesting. So it said, I read it said when sailing, quote, large, she logged that fastest speed of 14.4 knots. So sailing term large has an interesting history. Picture a boat sailing in a given direction. If the wind is blowing at any angle with the direction of travel, it's considered to be sailing Large. This comes from the idea of something being unrestricted, allowing it considerable freedom, as in a fugitive at large. Is that what it comes from, living large? Like, if you're living large, you're living unrestricted? Yes. And yeah, it's just, living yeah. unrestricted. Exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. There's a lot of other tie-ins here. Um, ships sailing large were able to maintain their direction of travel anywhere in a wide arc without needing to make any continual changes to the sets or the sails. So that's why it's at large. On the other hand, if the ship is sailing at any degree into the wind, you would be sailing by the wind. Sailing ships were also able to sail into the wind to some degree, usually within 45 degrees of the wind. In such a case, the ship was said to be sailing by the wind, where by has the meaning of towards. Right, okay? right. So if a sailor was talking about all possible circumstances, he would be saying, by and large... So the, yeah, Which that is the origin everything. of the common saying. Nice, nice. So I love etymology. It's 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 wonderful. It, well, here's another one for you. When a ship was pointed closely into the wind, sailing by, the sails were all drawn as close as possible down to her side. If the helmsman, by mistake, turned the ship closer to the direction of the wind than it was capable of sailing, the wind would press the sails back against the mass, stopping the ship dead in the water, and possibly even breaking the mass completely off. It was a serious deal to do right. this. And this this case the ship was taken aback which is the source of that other common metaphor oh i was taken aback by that that's awesome it is cool i love that stuff all right so anyways back to our question even fastest ships weren't relatively that fast at 17 miles an hour. by the way i looked up i'm trying to figure out how this ship survived so long it was it was coppered 
Oh, they covered it in copper they sheathing? They covered it in copper sheathing, and that kept the Toreto worm out, which was, that's what the death of most wood ships, wood ships was, was the worm. Right. You know, the worm would eat away. Wood worm. Wood. Yeah. Worm wood. Yes, yep. that's the one. Yeah. So they, it was coppered. Coppered. Got yeah. it. All right, let's move on from ships. Okay. So pay attention here. So God, we could do it. I know we could. Yeah. All right, so we're thinking about how fast. Write that down. I want to talk about ships. Okay. We need, we need to find, write that down. We need to find, uh, I would love to do a ship. We wanted to do a whole series on boats, and we're still going to get there. Yeah, I want to do something Racing on boats. How, how maritime, you know, everybody knows the stories of, you know, Christopher Columbus and Magellan and this stuff. Right. They know the general overview, but I would really like to understand what it was like back then. It was too. terrible. Yeah, obviously. Obviously full of death, scurvy. disease, scurvy. Ugh. Yeah. All they needed was some vitamin C, didn't they know? I, no, they didn't. <laughs> I don't know. Or they ran out. I would love to talk about that stuff. I think Maritime. Food goes bad quickly was the problem, I think. That's true. That's true. And you're out there for months. Mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm. good. Dried fruit. They, they maybe didn't have like food what? preservers so, or anything <laughs> like that. Fruit roll up. <laughs> Okay, so thinking about going fast back in the day, what about steam locomotives? We'll count that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, as we went into depth with a previous episode, steam trains were around during this period, but they were built to haul massive loads, not go fast. Going faster than a horse was highly unlikely, even if you were Doc Brown. How fast did you go? Well, I've had her up to 55 myself. I hear that uh, fearless Frank Burgle got one of these up to near 70 out by his dirty junkie. Well, you think it's possible to get it up to 90? Ha! 90? Carnation, son, who never needs to be in such a hurry. Oh, it's just a little bit here, and I have that's all. Theoretically speaking, could it be done? Well, I suppose if you had a straight stretch of track with a level grade, and you weren't hauling no cars behind you, and if you could get the fire hot enough, and I'm talking about hotter than the blazes of hell and damnation itself, then yes, it might be possible to get her up that fast. Hey, Doc, we just hit 35! <laughs> okay, Marty, I'm coming aboard! Hopefully we'll hit 88 miles per hour before the needle gets much past 2,000! Why? What, what happens after it hits 2,000? A whole boiler explodes! Perfect! Wow, that's awesome. I I had to stitch a bunch of clips together because I was like really getting into it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I was like, oh, that's a good movie. And then they ended up having like these colored blocks that they would chuck in. Yeah, that's what he was talking about. That's why he's like, oh, we better get up to 88 before the red because then it's going to blow up. Yep. Okay, so let's say for the sake of argument that trains could go 88 miles per hour. That still isn't the fastest vehicle of the time. How much horsepower did some of these uh, locomotives have? It was like 2,000. Yeah, it was, but the torque was like hundreds you, oh, of thousands yeah, of... Yeah, because steam is, is still one of the most like powerful torque generators. Yeah, absolutely. So as I alluded to before... Oh, this one had uh, tractive force. I'm just looking. Works in 1916, Virginia Railway, a triplex six-cylinder 2884 tank engine. Steam thing had 166,000 pound-feet of torque. 199,000 at peak. I mean, that's crazy. Nuts. What was the fastest train? It, it really was like, I don't know if you could get up to 88. Okay, not possible. No, but it really 40, is 50, more like 70 would be like ridiculous. Like, what are we doing? The rivets yeah, are popping are, off yes, this Why boiler. are you doing this? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Which, come on, some somebody tried. 
Oh, but it, but it went unmeasured because it was somewhere in Nebraska in the open. <laughs> like at this, he's like, but oh, again, let's... they weren't made for this. They were made for hauling massive loads, not for speed. So what? <laughs> Come on, we're talking about men, right? Yes. Look at there's there's look at the Paris Paris Dakar rally where they're taking right. semis and racing them across the. True. I mean, which I love that it was just the parts haulers and the guys that were supporting the race vehicles were like. Well, yeah, I'm gonna let's get there see if I can beat this guy. You have to imagine that at some point there was some conductor just sitting there. Just there's, somehow there's parallel tracks running next to each other. <laughs> and like the other train company is right there. Be like, oh, yeah. And there's, <laughs> and there's some chick in some sort of outfit. But it's it's not very revealing right. and, no, by no, our no. standards. But maybe but ankles. By, but oh, by their standards, you can she see lifts her up her dress and drops her handkerchief. Oh, and away they go. Drag race. <laughs> what I love is when they start from a dead stop with high pressure, the wheels do a burnout. Yeah. They, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So no. I was just Hey, we should do an article about trains, but we did. We, if you we haven't, did that. If you haven't listened to that, that is a great series. That was a multi-part yeah, series multi-part as well. multi-part series. That one was excellent way back in the day. What was it called? I don't know. I have no idea. The Indomitable Iron Road, parts yes. one, two, and three. Yeah, just look up Overcrest Trains. I bet you'd find it. It's phenomenal. One of my favorites. Absolutely. Okay, so as I alluded to before, once people started to embrace ice as a means of transportation, things really took off. As early as the 17th century, some crazy guys in the Netherlands realized that if they took the sails off their ships and attached them to carts, they could slide across the ice with ease. Ice boats, as they came to be called, were a well-documented means of transportation on the frozen Gulf of Riga and the canals of the Netherlands well into the 18th century. Initially, boats were used for commerce. But as we've seen time and time again, as we just talked about, anytime there's a couple guys with vehicles of any sort, they try to race them. Absolutely. The ice boats soon evolved into pleasure craft distinguished as ice yachts. Ice sailing was brought over to the New World, whereas crazy yanks eventually turned them into full-fledged racing machines. The first recorded ice yacht was introduced on New York's Hudson River in 1790 by one Oliver Booth of Poughkeepsie. His craft was a square box. It's Poughkeepsie. I like Poughkeepsie, though. It's wrong, but go ahead. I didn't know that, to be honest, <laughs> obviously. It's Poughkeepsie. Poughkeepsie. Okay. So Oliver's craft was a square box atop three metal blade-like runners, the two forward runners being nailed to the box, and the third act is at a rudder operated by a tiller. Yeah. Okay. As, as the sport grew, the ice yachts got bigger as well, as long as 69 feet with up to seven crew members on them. So, just how fast were these things? Well, the first American challenge pennant occurred in 1881 on the Hudson River with five ice yacht clubs competing. This is how I know people race trains. Okay? I mean, come on. This is what we figured out. This is what we're doing with our spare time. Come on, man. 100%. You're right. Okay. Races were sailed five times around a triangular course with one-mile legs. Okay? So, a big, like, three-pointed triangle. One mile between them. That yep. was the race you'd go around five times. One craft in particular named the Icicle reached a claimed top speed of 107 miles per hour. Holy cow. In fact, some reports claim speeds as high as 140 were reached. Come on. These things were, by any standard, ridiculously fast. And obviously very dangerous. Well, here's the thing, though. If you fall down on perfectly flat ice, you're just going to slide for like a few miles. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever fallen off a snowmobile at high speed? 
it doesn't feel great. No. It does not feel no. great at all. I have I wiped out on my snowmobile once and on a lake. Yeah. And it had many bruises. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because uh, even if it's a flat surface or flat, it's, it's not, not perfectly flat. flat. It's not flat. And it's so not. you have little like bumps coming at you oh, really yeah. fast. It doesn't feel good. <laughs> yes. And just without a helmet on, I would have been seriously oh, injured. Oh, that would have been bad. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been very bad. Can you imagine? So, like, I, I have hit, I think, 120 on a snowmobile on an ice bed. What snowmobile was this? It was a relatively new snowmobile, It was I like imagine. an Indy 600, yeah. Yeah, you did. You were like going that. about 100. It was over 100. I think it was, like, 115 indicated. Mm, well, maybe, but I doubt it. I had an Indy 600 triple, and that thing would do about 98 miles per really? hour. Yeah. I felt like I was going really, really fast. Yeah, I, remember, like, I remember the Speedo being over 100, like, way over 100. Well, maybe yours was better than mine. I I don't know. This sounds like a tall tale to me. <laughs> and then I caught that a fish. fish was it was massive. <laughs> <laughs> but no doubt, snowmobiles are fast and they are fun. Right, but think about that on this like little sailing thing with little ice skates basically on each corner. Nope, going way faster than that. Would not do it. Would not attempt with a probably a leather. They still cap. do this today. How fast do they go today? It's probably similar. Yeah, yeah. it's similar. Yeah. Um, so just as we found ways, another thing I was thinking about in terms of speed was bobsleds. Are we going to talk about bobsleds? We, we aren't. So they did about, they do about a hundred. Right. Their top speed is a hundred and a yes. bobsled. However, back in the day, they didn't go quite as fast. Although the, the sport did exist back then. It was kind of interesting. I wish I would have gone in depth with it, but it was like, I think it was in again, the Netherlands or maybe sure, Switzerland. Norway or something. Yeah. It was basically like this weird walking trail up this mountain had like all these snow drifts on it and they took toboggans down it. And then the next year they realized, well, if we like sprinkle some water on it and make it really icy, then we can really get going fast. Ask me how I know that they raced trains. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Everything that moves has been raced. Name something that That's hasn't moved true. and been in a race. <laughs> that is true. Because mine is faster than yours. Yeah. Which is we're already bench was... racing Indy 600s here. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come You're on. Right. Everything oh has been raced. You're right. Yeah, the toboggan thing back in the day, it was like these rich like earls would all come together on the hill to make a big event of it. And it yeah. was like all these rich guys would come together and they're Tobogganing. Down. I think dodgy bonds are a pretty good example of we'll race anything. You're right. Yeah, those are Japanese vans. Yeah, that right. We, that's another episode. We got to do oh, something on that. Yes. All right, anyway, sorry. Okay, so just as we found ways to achieve amazing. Hey, if anybody sp- knows anybody in Japan, I've tried to get a hold of a few people okay. to try and talk about Japanese car culture and culture which over is, there. Which is nuts. If anybody knows a guy, send me an email. Send me a message, please. That'd be great. I'd love to like talk to somebody. Okay, so we found. Ways of achieving amazing speed on ice and snow. Our ingenious forebearers found other ways to work with winter. Remember how I said commerce was completely dependent on moving goods by horse and carriage? Well, just like many of us swapped to winter tires once the snow falls, our predecessors changed out their wagon wheels for sleigh runners. And in order to make roads more passable for these horse-drawn sleighs, cities and towns would draw massive weighted rollers behind horses to compact the snow into slick surfaces. And so Nokian Tire was born. <laughs> A bit later, but yes. It was the perfect solution at the time, though. Rolled roads didn't create large snow banks and were wider than plowed roads while maintaining an ideal surface. A sleigh on a rolled road was oftentimes easier to pull than an equivalent cart on wooden wheels, even. 
Pedestrians, as we talked about, would often replace their shoes with snowshoes, and horseshoes were actually outfitted with special cock shoes that increased horses' grip on ice. Even railroads took advantage of the conditions. The winter of 1852 was apparently quite especially long and cold. So cold, in fact, that the Susquehanna River in Maryland froze completely over, something it doesn't do. This was a huge problem for the Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore Railroad Company. They had no bridge across, across, across the Susquehanna and had used ferries to transport passengers and freight across the river. So you'd come to the end of the line on one side, they'd take their ferry across, and then you'd hop on the train on the other side. So what did they do? The railroad simply laid tracks right over the ice. For the next 41 days, nearly 1,400 train cars carried 10,000 tons of freight across the frozen river. Why not? It's like an ice road. To keep weight to less than four tons per axle... Locomotives were kept on shore, pulling the train cars across by cable. The logging industry was another big proponent. So they didn't have an engine on them. They just used a cable well, and probably engine, like a steam engine those, on shore. No, they actually, it was the steam engine. Yeah, they have like lithographs or like paintings of this happening. And so they put out temporary track across the river. With a rope and then just yanked them across. Yep, the train would stop. They'd take the locomotive off of it and then roll them across the river. And the basically locomotive on the other side would pull them. The logging industry was another big proponent of embracing the advantages of winter. Hauling massive logs across frozen ground was much easier than doing it in warmer months. So much so that the majority of logging was specifically done in the winter. During the unusually light snow season of 1915, the Banger Daily News reported that there are, quote, large numbers of idle workers who were, during normal winter weather, employed by the logging industry. No snow, no work. In fact, starting in the 1870s, logging companies built sprinkler wagons full of water that they drew across roads in the cold of night, creating layers of ice several inches thick. These ultra-slick ice roads allowed two horses to move immense loads. Sprinkling extended the hauling season into March or even April, which I don't understand that. April, it doesn't freeze in April, does it? Overnight, maybe. I guess. As an added benefit, snow and ice roads were actually better for the forest itself. It was less damaging to forest life than a tractor or a big logging truck. These roads were so cost-effective that many companies were hesitant to switch to expensive tractors when they came available. After all, ice is free. Yeah, water doesn't cost a lot. Of course, it wasn't long before people saw the need to fight against nature rather than use it to their advantage. While snow rollers were great for preparing roads for sleighs, there were instances where snow needed to be cleared instead. Enterprising inventors were issued the first patents for snow plows in the 1840s, but several years passed before the plow designs were actually put to use. The first mention of snow plows used by the city was a Milwaukee in 1862. The plow was attached to a cart pulled by a team of horses through the snow-clogged streets. I'm guessing it was on the back. It was actually. Because the horses aren't going to be be pushing anything. No, that doesn't work very well. Over the next several years, horse-drawn plows gained popularity and came into use in many other northeastern cities. Inner-city steam trains, having made their appearance several years earlier, began to pull and whistle their way through heavy drifts with giant plows attached to their front ends. Salt was actually known to lower the melting point of ice, so it was distributed on roadways in numerous cities. And that was the beginning of the end. Well, here's what's interesting. People hated it. 
They protest assaulting because it ruined the streets for slaying and damaged pedestrians' shoes and clothes. Everything was leather, right? Right. And salt destroys leather. So everyone's like, what are you doing? Still destroys your shoes and clothes. I know. Still, to this day. So while plowing enabled- I'm with you, all of you people who are gone. Exactly. So while plowing enabled carts and trains to navigate urban areas, it created a whole new host of problems. While clearing the main streets for traffic, it effectively blocked the side roads and sidewalks with huge uneven mounds of compacted snow, something we still see today. Businessmen complained and even brought lawsuits against the plowing companies. Merchants claimed when their storefronts were completely blocked by mounds of plowed snow, and sleigh drivers also found obvious fault with plowing. Yeah. Here you were great with your sleighs, making way, and then what's this? They plowed the damn street. I can't use my sleigh anymore. However, progress and with it plowing marched forward. The duty of plowing fell to cities and municipalities, where it created the basis for tax dollars to be put to providing the public service. Yes, absolutely. There we go. Meanwhile, in the western part of the country, railroads were a critical form of transportation, especially for the mountain mining industries. The railroads noted that a train's cow catcher did a decent job of pushing light snow aside, and expanded on the concept to create a massive wedge plow fitted to the front of locomotives. While the design worked well in most parts of the country, they just didn't work. You ever work. see those on the front of the train? They're massive. They are massive. Just massive snow plows on the front but of the But wait things. till you get to this next thing. All right. So that worked pretty well in most places. However, when you get to the deep, heavy snow in the mountains, it didn't work. They just couldn't keep up momentum to push it out of the way. Enter J.W. Elliott, a Toronto dentist. He had been tinkering with a plow design he thought might work well on a train. His plow had a rotary engine that drove a wheel rimmed with flat blades. As the plow went down the track, snow collected in a housing on the plow and then got funneled up to the blades, which tossed the snow out through an opening at the top of the this housing. This thing is <clears throat> pardon me, absolutely terrifying. They still use them today. It is terrifying. Let me it describe looks like this something from, out of a post-apocalyptic. Like, yes. You let me let me describe. Okay, because it's even more ridiculous than you think they are. So the railroads actually passed on the idea, but Elliot persisted. He hooked up with an orange, an inventor orange. His name's Orange. He hooked up with inventor Orange Jewel. Okay. Did he also invent the Orange Julius? <laughs> he had to have, right? Obviously, he his name's Orange Jewel. Well, an Orange Julius is a frozen drink, so it's Ooh, in the neighborhood. I like that. Yeah. So anyways, they improved on the design and commissioned a full-scale working model. So if people aren't going to buy the idea, you might as well make the damn thing and then sell it. The next winter, they convinced the Canadian Pacific Railroad to test the new plow on its line near Toronto. The plow cleared the track easily, tossing snow as far as 200 feet out of the way, and the railroad managers were impressed enough to buy eight plows on the spot. These train-mounted rotary snow plows are still in use today. The largest ever used was Union Pacific's 90081. This 188-ton behemoth used a 3,000-horsepower, 16-cylinder turbo diesel to spin a 12-foot diameter cutting wheel at 150 RPM. I'm looking at a picture of this thing. It is terrifying. That's all I can say about this is this is like... It, it is. The machine, which can you know, throw you know, snow... You know the thing that they have when you have cheese and you're at the restaurant and they're like, hey, would you like a little bit cheese more grater. cheese? It's a little road but it's rotary. A, yeah, it's a rotary That's what this grater. reminds me of. If you put like a massive block of cheese in front of this thing, well, it could just... I, just, just, just wait till we're going. Just wait. 
Okay, so the machine, which can throw snow hundreds of feet clear of the track, is not self-propelled, actually, and would be pushed by up to four locomotives behind it. Because the thing itself is all engine to drive Supply the big... Supply chain waits for no one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so here's where your terrifyingness comes in. I've heard stories of these things encountering like deer carcasses frozen in snowbanks, and it would basically puree these poor things, shooting red snow all over the landscape. They are no joke. <laughs> Clearly. I mean, and they like, are terrifying looking. Yeah. I would like to see it running. You should. I, I, all afternoon, I was just watching videos of these things <laughs> <laughs> because they did invent them, as this guy talked about back in the day of um, steam locomotives. So there's video of one in, I think it was in Colorado, that they just ran a few years ago. Sure. So it's steam powered unit with like two or three steam locomotives pushing it through massive snow. They get cut through 20 feet of snow, no problem. Well, you got to do it. Oh my God! It's like just seeing this thing. It looks like some sort of some sort of beast, like a worm. You ever see tremors? Yeah, it's like that. It's oh, just yeah. its mouth is just nope. It's yeah. It's, What's interesting about it is it has like a it has like an arm on the front that beats the snow too and like loosens it up. I'm just it's oh it's, I didn't see that one. Yeah, it's this one is this super old film. It's it's spinning with a in in the counter to the actual blades of the blower. Huh. To like break up the well, snow. I've seen, and so ice. is it like the nose cone with the like propeller on it almost? No, I've seen that one too. That one is that one's terrifying. Yeah, they're, well, they're all terrifying. They're all terrifying. Yeah. You know what isn't terrifying, Chris? Oberk Car Care. Have you ever wanted to polish or detail your vehicle? No, but we're because it's terrified. I, I find it terrifying. <laughs> it is terrifying. Exactly. You don't know where to start. Well, Oberk was researched, developed, and tested by car care experts to bridge the gap between enthusiasts and professional grade products and remove the guesswork from polishing or detailing your vehicle. These guys are passionate with a long history of developing products, so they know firsthand what makes a good product. Right now, they're offering a whopping 20% off your order at oberkcarcare.com when you use the code OVERCREST. Check them out over at oberkcarcare.com and use the code OVERCREST. Okay, so back before the 1900s, heavy snow would paralyze northeastern cities. That became abundantly clear when the blizzard of 1888 happened. During the blizzard, drifts were reported to cover entire first stories of buildings. Passenger trains headed for New York were trapped for two days in drifts exceeding 20 feet and jammed the tracks for miles outside the city. They obviously didn't have one of these rotary snowblowers. No, they didn't. More than 400 people died during the storm. Following the 1888 blizzard, cities recognized the need for more organized snow removal and looked for ways to avoid some of the problems altogether. Previously, cities would often wait until storms were done to begin clearing out the snow. But they discovered that if you actually take action during the storm, it produces far better results and more rapidly clears out roads. To combat the snow more effectively, cities were divided into sections and assigned plow drivers. By 1925, more than 17 million cars were registered, vastly increasing the demand for cleared streets. Public safety demanded snow removal efforts for every snowfall of four inches or more. Cities rushed to motorize their snow removal fleets, abandoning their horse-drawn carts. In conjunction with the new trucks, cities began to use tractors equipped with plow blades. But 
Just because plying was now done by a machine didn't mean it was easy work, Chris. So I found this interview of a guy who used to operate one of these early plow trucks back in the 1930s. It's about a minute and a half long, but I thought it's just so fascinating hearing a firsthand account of just how tough this work was. Plowing the roads of rural northern Maine was cold, tough work. Work that challenged the men of Coles Express and their machines. Well, we were hung up about as much as we plowed, to tell you the truth about it. I mean, we were breaking axles, taking out uh, low gears and rear ends and so forth. And, uh, but nevertheless, spring finally came and, uh, and uh, we took the truck back across the road before the ice went out. Yeah, you talk about tough. We didn't have a place to go under cover even. Everything was outdoors. The great outdoors was our garage and no way to get back to it. It was really rough going. No heat in the trucks. God's sake. Manual hydraulics? And the, uh, yep. And the snow plows, that old hydraulic plow, had three jacks in it. One for the point, one for each wing. And you had to pick them up, jack them, beat the band so you didn't need a heater. You kept warm, jacking them points and wings up and down, I'll tell you. One of our mechanics, a fellow named Mose McNally, we kept losing rear ends. Those big double reduction rear ends weighed over 250 pounds. It was so cold that it, it, uh, below zero much of the time when we had to change those rear ends. And Oh, Jesus. Big Swedish boy <laughs> that big awesome. Swedish boy. Yeah. So he just hauls a 250-pound rear end, put puts in his lap, scoots under the truck, bench presses it up, and is bolting it together in, in like sub-zero weather because he just has a blowtorch running under the truck. He just rubbed his hands in the yeah, I used to bench press a rabbit transmission in, which weighs about 70 pounds. Yeah, yes. imagine 250 pounds. Nope. Can't. In the middle of nowhere, blowing snow. I am not a big Swedish boy. No. <laughs> Apparently not. But yeah, I didn't even think about it. Like, yeah, they were manual hydraulics. So just like you're jacking up your car, you'd be doing that to run all the hydraulics for these plows. Yeah, because they didn't have pumps. They just, wow. It was nuts. Another motorized invention, the snow loader, was successfully tried in Chicago in 1920. The snow loader rode on tractor treads. Tra 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 Tractor treads. Tractor treads. Tractor treads, Chris. Yes, got it. Yes, okay. Equipped with a giant scoop and a conveyor belt. As the snow was plowed, it was forced up the scoop and caught by the conveyor belt, which carried it up and away from the street. The snow was then deposited into a chute at the top, where it was dropped into a dump truck parked underneath, where it was hauled away from the congested city streets. I don't know why we don't do that more. That's too slow. There's, too many, there's too many miles of road to be doing stuff like that. True. Slick layers of ice behind us. I think a they snow do it on the freeway. I think they, you know, in areas where they can't plow You're it. You're right. I have seen basically like these yeah. big snow blowers on, they, on front of plows. Into a truck. Yeah, they put it into You're a right. truck. Okay. Um, one interesting problem is that slick layers of ice left behind by snow plowing renewed demands for salt and sand use. So remember, they tried it in the cities and people were like, oh, we don't like this stupid salt. Yeah. Well, now that we're plowing everywhere, we need it. No longer concerned about the protests, city officials used salt by the ton to ease road conditions and also experimented with cinders and sand. 
Motorized salt spreaders became the primary tool in fighting snowy roads, and businesses and private citizens as well used tons of the stuff to keep driveways, sidewalks, and access routes clear of snow and ice. However, several cities in the Great Lakes region were unable to use salt due to the extreme frigid weather that rendered the salt ineffective. We've seen that here. Yeah, it, it gets too it cold, it work. just doesn't work. Yeah, down to, what, zero? It's yeah. right around zero, and yeah. it just doesn't Unless work. Unless you get, what is it, calcium chloride? There is different types of chemicals yeah. that work, like, I think 20 below, yep. something like that. But we, we've seen that, too, yeah, where that doesn't that work. Yeah. <laughs> in addition, while salt worked well in icy roads and minimal snowfall, it really didn't do good on deep snow. It's not going to melt all the snow. As snow removal efforts progressed, protests against salt renewed, supported both by environmentalists and motorists whose cars were being corroded by years of winter use. Back then, it only took like a year or two, and your right. car was Yeah, toast. your Model T was gone. Yep. Environmental experts discovered in the late 1960s that salt use was corroding cars, damaging roadside plant life, polluting water supplies, including drinking water, and killing fish in a ton of streams. Mm. It was a lot of salt there was use. Not, right now, we have a complex sewer system that generally takes care of a not lot of Not only that, there are regulations about how much salt is spread by the trucks, like the little rotating salt spreader. Yep, it's that's, metered. It's, it's metered, right. Yep. Back then, they basically would just like put up their rear dump and just let it flow out. Because they just, cause salt is common. I mean, it's not like a rare mineral right. or something. Yes. It is interesting. So today, some states are turning to beet juice. Yeah, we had a beet juice guy on the we podcast. We did. Remember? I, yeah, I didn't know if you remembered that. Yeah, we had the beet, beet juice, juice guy And on. cheese brine in lieu of salt. Because it also has properties where it'll lower the uh, melting point. Right. And the problem is, is that it they don't necessarily care about our cars. But they do care about the infrastructure damage to bridges and roadways. And the environmental impact, right. as we talked about yes. before. But regardless... I mean, that's the angle. If you want to get people to stop doing something, just make it about the environment. Because well, they're killing fish, Chris. They're killing fish. That's they can The, the EPA can spend money. They can write checks. They don't even have to check yes. with Congress. Yes. They can do anything they want. So if they get don't give a salt. shit. They don't care I about want, your rusty child killer. No one's eating killer. beets anyways, Chris. When's the last time you had a beet? Yuck. No one's eating beets. Let's Gross. put it on the roads. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure the beet lobby is right with you. I like it. Can we use... Is there a catchphrase we use? Like... like Beat beats the road. Beat the road with beats. Better with beats. Better with beats. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, better with beats. I like that. Okay. Well, beat salt with beats. Or salt beats not, not beats. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That, 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 that wouldn't that, fit that, on the, the no, tagline. No, no, no. Okay. But regardless of what these trucks are actually spraying behind them, snowplows are a mainstay of life in the winter. Call Mr. Plow. That's my name. That's my name again. It's Mr. Plow. You know that uh, at the at the end of the movie Fargo, yeah, there is a snowplow that drives at the end of the movie. Right. What What do I know about this? That's Jesse, my 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 wife's dad. Oh, drives that's the snowplow. Right. I did Fargo. hear this story. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a fun little thing because they wasn't supposed to be there, right? Like it just came into yeah, it into just frame. Came in. yep, yep. Okay. So, in addition to playing an essential role in that Simpsons episode, a snowplow also featured a prominent role in all of things an NFL game. During Week 14 of the 1982 NFL season, the Miami Dolphins traveled to a snow-covered New England to take on the Patriots. The game was scoreless heading into the fourth quarter as both teams were stifled by the harsh conditions. 
Toward the waning minutes, the Patriots had the chance to kick a field goal, and this happened. Timeout is called by New England with 4.45 remaining, and they're sending the field goal kicking unit on. John Smith missed one in the first half. Will he make one sure here and break a scoreless tie? He's got to be a little disappointed. Just a moment ago, the guy who handles the little brush machine came out on the field here to make a place for John Smith to spot the ball. There you see it, that slash mark at the right of your screen. And he just drove out onto the field, made the spot. Matt Cavanaugh's gonna hold. The ball will be spotted at the 23-yard line. For Smith, the left-footed kicker, activated Friday. A 33-yard attempt to break the scoreless tie. On the way. It's good! <laughs> it was scoreless with less than five minutes to go. And Mark Henderson, driving a John Deere, plowed the way Ooh. for John Smith to kick it. Matt Cavanaugh to hold it. The only points in the game, this 33-yard field goal, the Patriots win 3-0. Don Shula can't believe that Mark Henderson was a on a work release program from a nearby prison, a convicted burglar, and he robbed the Dolphins of that victim. <laughs> so this is the craziest thing I've heard. So just before that field goal attempt, the New England's head coach. This episode is the biggest tangent oh, big of time. all time. That's why I said I'm not talking about the actual topic of no, the conversation. Because like 20% of it is focused on snowplows. Yeah. Okay. It's the biggest tangent ever. Yes. So before that field goal attempt, the New England's head coach ran after the snowplow operator, who, yes, did happen to be a convicted felon and a prison inmate on work release. I don't know how they let him in the stadium and ordered him to clear a spot for the kicker to kick from. Is that Was that illegal to do? I, there was no rule against it. Prior to this, the plow had only cleared the yard markers, right? right? So it was snowing so heavy, he would clear off all the yard markers. And there was no, not a single point scored the entire game. What a boring Super Bowl that must have been. It wasn't a Super Bowl. It was oh, just, just game 14 just game. or whatever. Yeah, so he ordered him to come out and snow plow this little area for the kicker. And he made the field goal. And, and that game. was it. 3-0 in what would go down as the snow plow game. More recently, snowplows once again made headlines as Minnesota's own Department of Transportation held a contest to name eight of the state's snowplow trucks. Plowy McPlowface. <laughs> yeah, winning entries decided by the public were Plowy McPlowface, Snowy Juan Kenobi, F. Salt Fitzgerald, and Darth Blader. Ooh, this is a bunch of nerds. <laughs> yes, it is. And just last year, our fellow Minnesotans were able to name eight more plows in the second Name a Snowplow contest, backed by popular demand. The winning names this year, in order of vote totals, are Betty Whiteout. Nice. Control Salt Delete. <laughs> the Big Laplowski. Plowosaurus Rex. Scoop Dog. The Blizzard of Oz. No More Mr. Ice Guy. And Edward Blizzard Hands. I like all of those. They're all absolute phenomenal They're choices. Pretty Thank clever, you. actually. Thank you, my fellow Minnesotans. That's yeah. very good. So there you have it. A chilling history of our fight against winter, from speed records to sleighs, massive train-mounted snowblowers, to the ubiquitous snowplow. Now it, it, the onus is on me to come up with a title for this episode. I, I We're just going to call it... The um, biggest tangent in no, history. No, we're going to call it a chilling history, dot, dot, dot. 
chilling history, a tangent of monumental <laughs> proportions. Sure. Uh, the blizzard of tangential. A, a blizzard of tangents. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, though, I can't help but hearken back to the day when we would have simply embraced the snow, strapped on our snowshoes, and took our sleigh down a nice, clean, freshly packed, snowy road. Although, admittedly, I'd been doing it at my 911 with, like, studded rally tires. Yeah. Because there's no salt. Don't have to worry about that. The problem is nobody plowed it back then, so you'd be... No, they packed it, remember? Yeah, but how are you getting it out of the garage? I don't know. I'll have my own snow packer. Yeah, but the, the, the snow plow that was dragged behind the horses buried your house. So you're, you're No, it's stuck. not a plow. It's a packer. They just I know, packed but it. They did the on roller. that road. The road you want to go on was like that. But yeah. They, but they dragged behind, plowed, and, and piled all the snow no, in front did. of your house. No, they did. This was before the plow. They rolled oh. everything. Okay, so you're all set. You're, I'm all set. You're on your well-groomed yeah. your well groomed road. Snow rolled with my 911, except all the other sleigh drivers would hate me because I'd be creating ruts. You would. You would be destroying their path. It would be very unfortunate for all of them. It Still. seems like a romantic time it kind of did yeah but it's easy to look back and go wow how romantic when in re- reality is you're in a sleigh with no heat freezing your nuts <laughs> off just shivering <laughs> as you're trying to go pick up your smoked meat so you don't die in your little in your little unheated one fireplace cabin with your cow in it because there's 25 feet of snow outside so chris likes plows and salt I do not. I, I don't think the I don't think the salting is necessary. The, the only reason salting is necessary is because people don't have decent tires. Yeah, if I you would had agree decent with tires. That. I, I don't think that you would need. I don't think that you would need it. Yeah. Well, there you have it. I'm not sure what's going on next week. Uh, I have reached out to a special guest that I would like to have on that confirmed that they would come on after a certain movie came out. So oh. I have to, I have to wait. They had to wait till the movie came out because there was a non disclosure agreement. Really? So I reached out well, to I'm that excited person. about this. Yeah, it should be it should be pretty fun. I will not tell anybody what I'm talking about, and you can just live with it. I don't care. <laughs> we will see you guys next week. Take care.